This is a Stand Up New York Labs production, providing you podcasts since 2013. Hey everybody, Raylan Casper White here with another festive episode of X-Ray. I am fucking loving L.A. I gotta tell you, L.A. is more New York than New York is these days. Haven't been in New York the last year dealing with oligarchs and finance bros and hedge fund douchery. Uh, really kind of lost all the soul from New York back in the 60s. Not that I was there in the 60s. I don't have any fucking idea. But it's the right thing to say. It's the cool thing to say that New York has changed. So I'm going to say New York has changed and I miss I miss the artists and people from the Sex Pistols cavorting in the village. I have no idea. But um, I am here in L.A. and I'm loving it. A lot of, lot of good food. I've discovered the joys of Tex-Mex place called home state uh their flour tortillas are like pillows of love i swear to god and you know here in la they have taco competitions that's what they have time to do here and they I think they won best flour fucking tortilla so if you're in los feliz so they call it los Feliz, which i don't know why we're americans and we're dumb like that but um go check out home state uh and check out their flour don't on, don't order the corn don't be an idiot order the flour tortilla there's a potato burrito i guess a burrito. Is it a burrito? Okay, you know what? I'm going to stop before I really reveal my ignorance. I am here with an amazing uh, gentleman, an adorable, can I just say, I love a man with a good a good baby face. I, I love it. I have my, my mic. He can't talk when I'm talking because that's how high tech I am. When I hold the mic, I got to talk. It's like Lord of the Flies with the conch. Author Gary Lipman, or Lipman, I'll get correct you in a minute, uh, or you can correct me. Gary Lipman, who wrote a book called Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate. It's a novel, and there's a gorgeous woman on the cover. I'm assuming that's Sharon Tate. I am, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, is this your first book? It is. I've written other books, but this is the first to come to publication. So are the other books just manuscripts sitting on the bathroom floor? In the bathroom closet. Okay, there's a closet in the bathroom. We must have a nice place. You have a closet in the bathroom. I had them on the floor, but I ended up tripping on them on my way to the toilet. So I ended up putting them in the bathroom closet. But they may be unearthed soon. Well, now that you have a book published, you know, things come out of the woodworks. I got to be honest with you. I am ignorant of Sharon Tate and and the Manson murders. It it always felt too gruesome to me. Can you give me a a, a kind of short, because I haven't seen the Tarantino film either yet, even though I love Brad Pitt and and Leo, uh, Quentin's face scares me a little bit. I mean, he's a, he's a hands, he's like Russell Crowe, like the handsome ugly. Do you know what I mean? Like he's such a cinephile and he's so smart. You could talk about Korean cinema for six hours, but something about the face, like I feel like he's going to cackle and I'm going to die. <laughs> but what happened? Can you give me a, a recap of what happened with Manson and Tate and, and, and all that stuff? Well, Sharon Tate was a beautiful up and coming movie starlet married to the very arrived Polish art film director, Roman Polanski. He slept with that underaged girl. Uh, yes, okay. yes. Uh, and so, but that came later. He was the golden boy in Hollywood, and Sharon Tate was very much becoming the golden woman in Hollywood. He had done the film Rosemary's Baby that was a big hit. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of an it couple in Hollywood in the late 60s. Okay. She was nine months, or eight and a half months pregnant. With Roman's baby. With Roman's baby. He was in uh, London working on a film, pre-production, she was here in Los Angeles in on uh, Cielo Drive in Bel Air, and one night, August eighth to 9th, nineteen sixty nine, she was with three friends on her property and uh, entered Charles Manson's minions. Cut to Charles Manson, lifelong inmate, psychopath, really trained in prison uh, as a pimp. Mm. 
So he was a glorified pimp who got out on the streets in 67, be- apparently begged to be kept in prison because he was so institutionalized. But he was bounced, hit Haight-Ashbury, and saw everybody ripe for the pickings, all the hippie kids, runaways. Well, what was he in jail for? Uh, r- a lot of violent robbery, burglary. Okay, but-, but no sexual assault. I don't believe there were any sexual assaults, but he certainly practiced those and was capable of those. He learned how to pimp, and he also learned how to manipulate people in prison. Good-looking guy? Not a good-looking guy unless you dig very small, long, black-haired, freaky-eyed. That's my type. You hit the nail on the head. Oh, well. (laughs) Well, he, you know, one of my favorite lines, by the way, from The Sopranos is when a crazy guy is talking to Tony Soprano and really angry at Tony Soprano and really glaring at him. Soprano says, as I recall, something like, stop flashing those Manson lamps at me. I like that line. Anyway, Manson hits the streets in uh, San Francisco and acquires a lot of followers. He's got these bonkers, um, racist, and apocalyptic theories. So all these minions are obviously white. All white. They had some dealings with African-American drug dealers uh, and uh, bikers, but mainly a white runaway drug-taking or drug-abusing, overtaking um, group of people, uh, young people, and they begin following him, as they did many gurus then and even now. They come down to Los Angeles. They wind up living for a while on the Spawn movie ranch, which was an old movie set Mm -hmm. for Westerns that had fallen into disrepair. They end up uh, making that their home base, you can see a reproduction of that movie ranch, apparently quite um, great verisimilitude to how it had been before it burned down in a fire in the Tarantino movie. Okay. So uh, Manson had his minions. He tried to make uh, get a record contract because he was a songwriter. Well, of course he was. Everyone in L.A. has to either be a screenwriter or a songwriter or a jewelry designer. And back then through his new friend Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys... Mm whose house he swiftly moved into with his girls, his Manson girls and some boys. Manson tried to get a record contract, was not succeeding, was making the scene at a lot of parties. There's some speculation that he encountered Sharon Tate once when visiting her house, which had been the home before Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski moved in. It had been the home of a guy named Terry Melcher, who was a record producer who Manson was sort of trying to coax into giving him a record deal. At any rate, Manson's getting bitter. It's a hot day, August 8th, 1969 in L.A. And Manson that night sent four of his, four or five, four, I guess, of his minions out and said, go to Terry Melcher's house and kill everyone there. All because he couldn't get a record deal? Well, people speculate about whether it was that or whether he knew that Terry Melcher no longer lived there, but that Sharon Tate, this beautiful blonde he had glimpsed once, was living there. He just wanted blood. And he also wanted to do, if you, sub, if you follow or if you believe that he was motivated by this, he had a theory of what he called helter-skelter, which was an apocalyptic battle in which African-Americans would kill all the whites and would then give a a redemption to Manson and his family and let Manson and his family rule over them 
And um, so he's racist, says a lot of bad shit about the African-American population. But somehow his helter skelter has these African-Americans saying, we love you. Come rule us. And then he rules that. I mean, even his there's no narrative through like even logical narrative through line to this apocalyptic. Jesus Christ. So he ended up uh, sending and then day after these terrible murders at Sharon Tate's house, he and other minions of his. Uh, kill this couple, the Lobiancas, who live in Los Angeles, different neighborhood. Eventually, he's um, he's captured. Every time you say minions, I can't keep th- help thinking about the cartoon characters. Do you know the minions with the cute little glasses? So it's really hard for me to imagine the minions going on a murder spree because right. they're a cute little yellow out. They kind of look like SpongeBob right. SquarePants with the cute thing. So I don't know what else can you call them? Disciples or just cra- right. crazies? And we certainly don't want to put it in mind. Orthodox, right, Orthodox Jews having a minion, which is a gathering for right. prayers. We don't want to imagine those guys going out. Uh, anyway, Manson is caught, and his theories, which, by the way, were powered by messages he found in songs from the Beatles. Right, Helter so the Skelter, be- Skelter Piggies was a song by George Harrison on the Beatles' White Album. That's what Manson called all the white, uh, white, elitists who put people like Manson down. So he ended up um, in prison, death penalty for him and his uh, fellow killers. The death penalty, I think in 72, was revoked constantly, you know, for the whole nation. So he remained on uh, in prison for the rest of his life, never would get paroled. So who else was, was murdered alongside Sharon Tate? The, Sharon Tate, her ex-boyfriend Jay Sebring was with her. He, he was a famous Hollywood hairdresser, hairstylist. Straight? Straight. Uh, I recently met his lovely ex-wife. Okay. He was, uh, by all accounts, a really cool guy Aww. and died, by all accounts, protecting, trying to protect Aww, Sharon man. Tate. He died by her side. He always carried a torch for her and was a great friend to her till the end. To uh, a friend of Roman Polanski was there and his girlfriend, Abigail Folger, who was the heiress to the... Folger Coffee. I always preferred Sanka, to be honest. There was a guy visiting the property, someone who lived in the coach house, who was uh, didn't know Sharon Tate or her friends, who happened to be murdered by the Manson people, too. Jesus. Wrong place, wrong time. His name was Stephen Parent, and Polanski's friend was named Wojtek Frykowski. So we've now given everybody's name out. Wow. They all died together, tragically. Yeah. Now, five years later... I'm a little boy. Well, not so little, 11. And I'm watching TV as a little boy, just beginning to like women. And I see a movie rerun with this beautiful blonde actress. And Eros awakens in me. I fall in love. But imagine my horror when the movie ends and the credits roll and I see Sharon Tate's name. And I'd seen Helter Skelter, the book about the Manson killings that had just come out in bookstores so I knew who she was and gasped with horror when I realized that this woman I've just fallen in love with on my TV set was murdered a few years before savagely. I went on to uh, live a normal life where I was not unduly fixated on that moment of falling in love with Sharon Tate. But many years later, when I was uh, about 30, I was in a bar in New York and I see a beautiful bartender working there and realized, again with a bit of a gasp, that this bartender looked like Sharon Tate. 
But I got thinking, and what fiction writers, I believe, do a lot is ask themselves, what if? So I thought, wait a minute, Sharon Tate, what if when I was that little kid watching her on TV and falling in love but then realizing she'd been murdered, what if I'd never, in a way, gotten over that moment? What if I fell in love and instead of, as I did, move on to digging Raquel Welch or other people, yeah. other way, Angie Dickinson was a big one, what if instead I'd become fixated on Sharon Tate and obsessed and become a super fan where my whole life was built around this worship of this dead film actress? And um, I then said, and here's what really clicked the story for me. I said, what if then this guy who's obsessed with Sharon Tate gets involved with a woman who he discovers is equally obsessed, but with Charles Manson? So it becomes a sort of duel of the super well, fans. So you're, so you're both fucked in the head. She's obsessed with a serial killer, and you're obsessed with a serial killer's a victim. A, a serial killer's victim. The serial killer's victim. Yeah. But if I had to choose, I feel like your obsession makes more sense than the other one. You know what I mean? Right. Can I? Gotta, I gotta say, I um, I'm. I just watched a Netflix series called Unbelievable, based on a true story of this um woman, this young girl who was raped. And they didn't believe her, and they kind of forced her to retract her story. And then years, three years later in Colorado, the rapist reappeared, and they didn't even know, you know, that, and they all connected. It's really well done. There's something so disturbing about being so fascinated with the true crime. True crime is such a hit in this country, and I'm trying to wrap my head psychologically. Like, what the f- It's like horror movies. I don't fucking get it. I guess we like to be scared and then we know it's fine, so we kind of tap into our deepest fears and we feel that kind of adrenaline, but we know we're going to be okay walking out of the theater. So what does that do? I'm just trying to, like, what does it do for us? Why is that a necessary... And I think it's cultural. I don't know if all cultures... But I don't know, maybe. I don't know if, if horror movies are bigger in America than they are in Europe or in Asia. I don't know. Maybe. But what is it about investing all these millions of dollars in these movies that are just scary and gory and the true crime even more? Because you know it happens, so it's kind of morbid. And what, what, where does that come from? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I got into it. I like watching Unbelievable. I like Toni Collette. I, I liked her in this a lot. Usually she has too many facial moves, like Claire Danes, her face moves too much. But she's really good in this. And the other actresses, uh, Merritt Weaver, this woman. Amazing, amazing actress. But I don't know what the fuck that is. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm just saying this obsession with like serial killers or like glorifying, like we get this weird kink out of it of like enjoying watching this guru get these women, you know, or that wild, wild country with Osho fucking nine million women. Like what the fuck? Why do we enjoy that? Why can't we enjoy more Marianne Williamson videos about love and hugging? Anyway, sorry, go ahead. So keep going with the novel. Well, I agree. First of all, I agree with you about our obsession with true crime and horror. And Tony Collette, by the way, does an amazing performance in a film I can't get out of my mind, Hereditary. It, it went over the top too yeah. much, but there were really powerful, disturbing moments. And the new film by that director is called Midsummer. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. With the crazy Worth Swedish, seeing. Uh, Swedish freaks. Swedish, bright daylight, 24-hour daylight freaks. It's great. Also flawed, but well worth seeing. And horror, I think about that too. Horror is such a popular thing now, true crime. I have a cousin who's an amazing writer named Jillian Lauren. She's written memoirs about, one was about her life in a harem. Ooh, hot. She was in the Sultan of Brunei's brother's harem and wrote a wonderful memoir about it. Is it amply graphic the way you want it to be? Oh, yeah. And, uh, but, but it's a really, you read it for the sex, but it's very much about her journey, how she got there and how she got out of there. 
She's a fantastic, uh, not only novelist, but memoirist. She's working on a book now that's, she's shown me uh, some excerpts from it and published um, an article in uh, New York Magazine about a serial killer who's the most prolific serial killer ever. African-American guy who mainly killed prostitutes of color often, almost always, and no one ever investigated their deaths, their murders. So this guy got away with it for decades. And my cousin Jillian Laurent, great writer, is writing about that and exploring not only that story, but what accounts for our fascination, I think she's going to get into, with serial killers and horror. And I think you're exactly right. We get to play out our fears in a safe forum by watching horror movies, by reading true crime. My book, my novel, to get back to that, is not so much about Manson, although he's certainly a looming presence, um, and especially when the character who's obsessed with Manson is involved, but I really, it really is a more romantic obsession for this guy, for my protagonist. And uh, I really put myself in that headspace of what it would be like to be so obsessed. I've always been fascinated by what the French call the idée fixe. Fixation. Okay. Fixation, right. Where someone thinks they're Napoleon or someone thinks our water supply is being... Right. Uh, Jerusalem complex. Right. People go to Jerusalem and think they're Jesus. Um, how does someone who... Maybe you can tell me a little bit of your backstory. Because for me, how does someone that has never written a novel before write a piece of fiction? It's so hard to get published, especially the publishing industry today, right? It's like very competitive. But did people know you in the literary world? Not at all. I actually worked in sort of the true crime business. I'm a criminal lawyer. Mm. I was working part-time at a place called The Innocence Project. Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld, big lawyers, who started 30 years ago, I believe, about 30 years ago, this organization out of Yeshiva University in New York, using DNA evidence to exonerate people who would write to us who were already incarcerated and claiming to be innocent. When they had DNA evidence, and when we could, we would get them exonerated if it seemed they truly were innocent. Occasionally the evidence shows they weren't innocent, aren't innocent, but a lot, there have been hundreds of people freed because of DNA evidence. Can't imagine if you know you're guilty, why would you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, go find some DNA evidence yeah. to make it, but then they end up finding your fucking DNA. Great point. But think about it. You're guilty and you hear about you your friend got nothing to lose. Yeah. One, in fact, one case early on when I was working there, I had done work in law with that field of what's called actual innocence and exonerations. Um, the thing that, uh, but when I, I here at the Innocence Project, it was focused on DNA evidence. And when I began working there, there was a case where a guy down in, I believe, Mississippi wrote to us. He was convicted of raping and murdering an elderly woman. So he wrote saying, I'm innocent. Please get me off. I uh, began investigating his case and wrote back to him a series of questions before we saying before we take the case, you know, we need to know because I was trying to ascertain if it did seem that he was innocent. The Innocence Project takes these clients on for free. So we wanted to make sure that we're devoting our resources to innocent people. That's the mandate. This guy, when I wrote the hard questions, he wrote back and said, uh, okay, I did kill the old woman, but I didn't rape her. At which point I thought to myself, 
I get what's happening. He's doing hard time, and the fact that he raped someone, an elderly woman, means he's getting mocked in prison in a way that he isn't for having killed her, say, in a robbery. So he wanted to be exonerated of that. I wrote back a letter to him saying, sorry, we're not going to help the case, your case. You can go here, you could go there for other resources, but we're not helping. And I remember I wrote at the end of the letter, being polite, good luck in your search for other representation. And when I showed it to someone I worked with who'd been there longer than me, they read the letter and okayed it and then said, but take out the good luck, which I thought was powerful. He just admitted to killing an elderly woman. Okay. Fuck him, you Fair know? Yeah. No, you don't need to... get raped in prison for rape. Or, or, or at least don't wish him good luck, right? right? So he, uh, that was the end of it. But the Innocence Project, I will say, unlike the Sharon Tate case and so many of these other cases, there were cases where I would look at the files and have to decide uh, whether we would, I'd write a memo up of in the beginning of whether we would take the case and therefore I had to, based on the file, determine if it did seem this client, potential client, was innocent. And there were many cases, not many, many, but some, and a few I still think about, where I couldn't tell. They were so evenly balanced between incriminating things and ex exonerating things. One case in particular, um, I still think about and can't tell if the person who I was in contact with on the phone and in letters, whether that person was innocent or not of a murder. How do you obtain... DNA evidence from a crime scene 20 years later? Very good question. Many cases, the, the DA or the police destroy the evidence, so it's very difficult to get it or impossible uh, or misplace the evidence. Um, but a lot of times they keep it. Unfortunately, a lot of cases, uh, the people, the, the inmate went in before DNA was commonly tested, so we have to get an initial DNA test. For example, there may be sperm or blood left uh, in the victim's file. So we now get DNA tested for the first time of the client to see if there's a match. So DNA is not like, uh, you know, milk where it goes bad if it's left out too long. You don't have to refrigerate it. Like DNA can be found on a, on a blood crusty thing five years later. It can, if it's properly preserved, it's still good. But a lot of times the police or the, uh, the prosecutor don't preserve it. Well, they didn't know about DNA evidence at the time, so they just put it in a Ziploc. Right, or they just don't, there's bad will. You know, there's, you wouldn't, um, be, you'd be amazed, or maybe you wouldn't be amazed at how careless people are. And there's bad will a lot of times. There's also goodwill, and there have been a lot of exonerations because the DNA was preserved or the other evidence was preserved. How do you feel about Kim Kardashian? You think she's full of shit? Or you think her heart's in the right place and she's spending her energy doing good work? I, if she, if Kim Kardashian, I'm not happy to see her uh, running around the White House, but I'm happy if she wants to be a lawyer and she wants to be an advocate for uh, prison rights, which I've heard about. Fabulous. She's got a great forum and can maybe change a lot of people's minds or bring a lot of attention. But, um, there's so many people who do great work. I'm no longer at the Innocence Project, though I'm still friendly with a lot of the people there, and maybe someday I hope to go back and help out. But they do such great work, and they're not, their names are not known to the general public. There are people in all sorts of fields who do great work as activists, 
as healthcare people and who never get known. So uh, those are the true heroes. I always get rubbed the wrong way. And again, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd, I like that uh, big philanthropic donations are tax deductible. You got to give them a little bit of incentive, even though it kind of takes a little bit away from it when you know there's a perk. But I get annoyed with all these families that name their fucking buildings after them. Unless you're naming it after like a, you know, a, a deceased relative or some sort of thing. But when it's like the Samuel J. Loeb, blue bloob and I didn't mean to make him Jewish, but a lot of buildings are, you know, a lot of hospitals in New York are Jewish funded. I don't mind the Mount Sinai's and the Cedar Sinai's. That's biblical, and I like that hospitals have something to do with, you know, Sinai and geography. But, um... And like, you know, like at Harvard, they got all these buildings named after donors, usually actually not Jew, you know what I mean? Like waspy families, like just donate the fucking building. Why do you have to have your ego narcissistic? On the flip side, I think, you know what? You know, they are narcissistic, it's probably how they got so much money in the first place. If they want to donate and it helps to have their name in big letters, then fuck it, fine. I'm right. just torn. Anyway, but I do listen, you ever listen to a, there's a show called Bookworm with Michael Silverblatt. Do you know him? I don't. Okay, he's on NPR. And... He has a very nasally voice like this, and whenever he talks about books, he's very well-versed in literary, and it always puts me to sleep, even though the conversations are fascinating. Uh, so I'm just going to channel him for a bit. He just had Toni Morrison, like an old episode, because she just passed away. So let me, um, I loved your book. I'm going to go into Michael Silverblatt. What, so what is the, ro- it's a romantic kind of retelling of this obsession with Sharon Tate and her relationship with another human who's obsessed with Charles Manson what is the um, the takeaway what do you want people to take away from the book is it just pure entertainment kind of pulpy is there uh, you know something else a deeper meaning or say you want to what, what do you want people to take away from it well I at the risk of spelling out too explicitly the moral if you will I take a critical view of pop culture obsession and uh, in a way without spoiling the end of the book The book itself, as I said um, in something I wrote to someone, is a sort of machine which operates to disabuse my protagonist of his obsession. It takes him through all these trials and tribulations in order to get him to a place where he can, uh, without giving too much away, renounce or move beyond his obsession and recognize it for the sort of unhealthy and even dehumanizing thing that it is. So I, I hate to spell it out too clearly, but I do want to because I in no way mean any disrespect to Sharon Tate's memory or her humanity to, to, to make light of her tragic fate. And so um, I have a critical view, and it isn't just entertainment. There is a sort of moral quality to the book. At least I hope that comes through. So while it's darkly comedic, and I really channeled my own, you know, Polanski, there's a, it's sort of an homage to some of Polanski's dark films, uh, especially a film of his that really made an impression on me called The Tenant, where the protagonist in this film, played by Polanski himself, moves into an apartment in Paris where the previous tenant attempted suicide and had gone crazy in this apartment, driven insane maybe by the neighbors, by her own darkness inside. And as he's living there, he begins to go crazy. And it's a very absurdist, dark film, kind of hilarious, but uncomfortably hilarious about this guy's own descent into madness. So I was influenced by that. I've always been fascinated by paranoia in stories. I love Thomas Pynchon and the paranoia in his books. 
that Polanski film has, you know, real high tide of paranoia, a real high tide of paranoia in it. So I was sort of evoking that and making an homage to that and Polanski's other film, Repulsion, with the young Catherine Deneuve going bonkers in an apartment. So my book is largely set in a hotel, a Hollywood hotel, where uh, the protagonist is going crazy and that madness is spurred along by a very toxic and addictive cough syrup he gets, <laughs> starts to abuse, something I made up. Because I've always been fascinated by that and uh, by addiction and by, um, uh, you know, people on the downward trend and the madness that ensues with that. So um, there is a moral element to my book. It's not just for yucks. And I tried to preserve that initial interest that I had when I first asked, what if? What if someone was obsessed? It could be any movie actress. Of course, the fact that Sharon Tate was murdered by this cult leader and his his associates that really you know is a compelling aspect to it but it's not just about Sharon Tate and it's not just um, for entertainment purposes I did have a, a sort of moral intention whether that comes through or not you and any other potential readers will have to decide as a as a, I'm going to veer. I, I My mind works in mysterious ways, so I sometimes go down these non-sequiturs or I'll ramble on about my menstrual cycle in the middle of an interview, so I apologize. But as a criminal, you were a criminal lawyer for a while, and I know you ended up trying to exonerate people, but is it harder, because I know criminal lawyers that are public defenders, where you have to defend people that 90% of the time you know, maybe, not saying are guilty, but you have to defend a lot of people you know in your gut are guilty, okay? But you believe in the idea of justice, you're guilty and proven innocent. Do you think that that attorneys that have to do that can can possibly do as good a job as people that are defending people they know are innocent or prosecutors that are prosecuting someone they know is is guilty when you know in your heart that the person you're representing really murdered somebody but you're doing everything to get them off how do these fucking people sleep at night is it really just you kind of convince yourself that you're really just serving justice the justice system i mean it, it doesn't make sense to me it doesn't doesn't ring true to me i don't know how these people function look at our government yeah and all the stuff that people justify the you know the, the behavior that they justify and they have any number of ways they can justify it i'm sure um as far as uh defending the guilty i got lucky when i did this part-time work at the innocence project over many years our gig was to defend the innocent. And as I said in that one story, when we knew someone was guilty, we had the luxury, because there was no big money flying around here, we had the luxury of saying, sorry, find someone else, and not even wishing them good luck in the process. So you've never had to defend someone you knew was guilty? When I was in law school, I worked uh, one, well, for a year in the clinic, where we defended some gangbangers who... We're not the, I, I worked on one case where we defended a kid who was in a car in which another occupant of the car was a shooter and killed some people. So we were defending according to um, the law because our guy, our client was in the car with the shooter. The culpability extended to him and he didn't report it, the shooting afterwards, etc. cetera. So um, that was the extent of my defending someone who or being involved with someone who was not purely innocent. I really have a lucky, lucky break in working at the Innocence Project where morally we didn't have to take showers every day after leaving because we were doing that good work. 
I find I don't envy those doctors. Uh, you know, when I was in Israel, you meet doctors that have to treat a suicide bomber, you know, or even here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, someone comes in, and I know they make a lot of movies about, like, what do you do? What, you know, who are you treating first? Well, the suicide bomber came in first, and the victim came in second. You know what I mean? Who do we deal with? These are just impossible fucking dilemmas, you know? And I know as you kind of fall in love with this concept of do no harm or this overarching principle, but then it becomes black and white and oversimplifies. I guess you have to function that way. Otherwise, you're, you're playing God or you're making decisions and it becomes a very personal thing. And this way you can absolve yourself of making those decisions on a minute-to-minute basis and not function properly. But it is always hard to imagine that someone's defending the scum of the earth, you know, and getting them off on a technicality or, you know, how are you serving the justice system really? Um, or you get you get stuck with a sucky lawyer, or the jury's a bunch of dum-dums. I mean, you know, you never know. It's like, but on the other hand, if you don't have jury and you have one judge, they can be in somebody's pocket or having a bad day or, you know what I mean, or gassy and they're not in the mood. And someone told me on the podcast that, uh, I think it was a do- uh, ER doctor last week, that uh, you want to have surgery in the morning because you have better recovery rate when the surgeon's not tired. But judges also, you want to go in the morning, not in the afternoon. They give more guilty verdicts in the fucking afternoon. Uh, well, I, you know, the whole idea of our legal system is that everybody's entitled to a defense, and that's why if they can't afford a lawyer, we have public defenders or in the federal arena, federal defenders, and just by the same token, doctors, if you're working in an emergency room, you get a person blown up, but they're still alive and you have to patch them up. The idea is that you don't question it. Just like the defense lawyer needs to earn a living, doesn't question it. I met a lawyer the other night who's a, high, a highly paid defense attorney here in L.A. And I didn't ask her, but I assume that she's handled cases. I'm not sure if they're murder, but she's handled cases where um, she knows, has reason to believe her client is, innocent, is guilty. But her job is defend. And so... It becomes not a legal matter or a professional matter even, but a moral matter, whether she wants to do that. And I know people who were prosecutors. I worked one summer during law school in the prosecutor's office in New York, Southern District. I remember seeing a really tall guy there. I never really met him, but a very tall guy, older than me, who I later realized was James Comey. So uh, working there, you know, as prosecutors, it occurred to me, you know, some of these people may be innocent who they're prosecuting. Unlike the defense attorney, the prosecutor has a duty, if they know the person they're prosecuting is innocent, to back off and to withdraw charges and to share evidence of that with the defense. Um, the defense, not so clear. I find that maybe doctors it's it's easier to understand why they go into medicine but if you're an attorney then at least you know if you have some sort of moral compass I get that you're trying to help the system but you're choosing to be in the position where most chances are you're going to be defending a lot of guilty people if you're going to public it's like a proctologist you know I mean no one's forcing you to go into proctology and and, you know and deal with anuses 24-7 you could be a dermat you know not even dermatologist but any nothing to do with discharge just be whatever you know what I mean be an ophthalmologist and just deal with eye sockets so you're choosing that so I already judge you a little bit. I get that you're a crucial part of the system, but F you. Anyway, um, this novel's coming out, and hopefully you'll get a movie deal out of it, because I like to wish that upon everybody. Thank you. Uh, I'm working on a movie deal about my life, which I think is a fascinating thing. Separating the artist from the art. You know what I mean? Talk about Roman Polanski, who turned out to be a scumbag. Woody Allen, we knew, was, was a scumbag. Michael Jackson, I still play Beat It in the Morning. You know what I mean? And do a little weird dance that I do. But how do you feel? Obviously, someone being a scumbag is not going to change the quality of their work. 
But should you still admire it? Should you still engage with it? Should you still support it? Do you, would you go see a Woody Allen movie now if it got made? Do you know what I mean? How do you feel about how do you feel about that? Well, it's the old Lenny Riefenstahl question. Right. Can a bad person make good art and art that you could say is noble and ennobling? Um, it's a it's a paradox and it's something you know every case getting into bad behavior as you talk about the me too movement exposing people there are certain real stark cases like harvey weinstein right. etc where uh there's no question but then you begin to every case is different and um uh, there's a lot of moral ambiguity when you get further down to just a bad date um, I was friendly with someone who was rightly accused and the friendship ended and I was friendly with someone who it turned out was wrongly accused but certainly uh, it's a great age where people are finally being called out then again the news of that just broke today about Brett Kavanaugh our newest Supreme Court Justice new evidence against him and the fact that uh, the new evidence has come out and evidence has come out that the FBI never really properly investigated the old evidence is shocking to the conscience and rage producing. But what else is new in the current state of America? I mean, at the end of the day, I think that all the energy should be going towards saving the planet right now. I feel like at the end of the day, I get I'm not minimizing any plights of anybody. I'm not minimizing, but I feel like we're so inundated and we're losing focus, we're seriously not going to have a planet soon. So, I mean, you know, when they donate a gajillion dollars towards fucking Notre Dame, nice building, housing, our, you know, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, but when, those, you know, Salma Hayek's husband's donating gajillion dollars to, to, you know, remake this structure, but we need money cleaning up our oceans, you know what I mean, and, and, and the global warming. Now, Trump is, again, and I voted for Donnie back in the day, and I still regret it, but... That's what's tragic to me. So I'm not saying, but I'm just saying, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying, I thought that was very eloquent, that I feel like people really, we need to focus, I wish we could have a dictator that would control the media, where they can just focus on the issues that we need to take care of, because it's so much, so it's depressing, everything's depressing now, everything's the guns, the gun control, you know what I mean, the tragedies, the, 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 the mass shootings, this country is in such a dark, dark fucking time and we're getting, we're losing focus a bit. Like, let's get three of the biggest fucking issues and, you know, protest the hell out of that. The planet, in the gun control, let's get that and then let's go down the line. But when you try and, like, deal with so much shit, it's exhausting and people end up feeling helpless. You know, you get overwhelmed. It's like me and my 34 kids, you know what I mean? I can't deal with all of them at the same fucking time. People with one kid, you better not fuck that up. You have no excuses. You have one kid, you better do your fucking job. That's all I have to say as a judgy parent um so this book is is out already it's out and it's available there's a beautiful photo it's available from rare bird press which sounds poetically nice uh michael imperioli who i love you know who i just met today that's so weird i just met drea di matteo just met her i just gave her my card played his girlfriend on the show i can't believe it and i thought about him because i looked her up on imdb to see what she's been up to and she's hot uh and i remember she was his wife and here he is giving the quote. Uh, Terry Southern, I don't know who that is, but I'll tell you. It has passed the torch in the hands of Gary Lippman. Nice Jewish name, I like that. With a finger on the pulse of America's obsession with obsession itself, Lippman works in the more lurid and macabre back alleys of pop culture worship and celebrity idealization. I love that quote. 
Michael Imperioli set the controls for the heart of Sharon Tate, a novel by Gary Lippman. Out, you can get it on Amazon or actually support your mom and pop bookstores. You know what I mean? Pay full price. Don't buy some used or don't kindle it. Don't be lazy. Go out there and support the stores so we don't end up with just one big Amazon monster and learn more about Jeff Bezos' sexual escapades. I love you, Gary Lemon. You have a, a, a reading on at The Strand on September 25th. Go to The Strand Bookstore, one of my favorite, uh, one of the largest, I think, used bookstores on the planet. Go hear Gary talk. He's a charming guy, and he's got a nice tan and beautiful blue eyes. I hate to make a Me Too moment here, but I always hit on my guests. Hear him read from the, from the book, uh, September 25th. And if you want to see me perform live in L.A., I'm going to be at Flappers in Burbank this Tuesday. Flappers in Burbank. And then at the Ice House, I'm doing a nice long set on September 24th. And then Caroline's in New York City, October 23rd. So please, uh, you can get tickets on my website, www.xraepod.com. Thank you so much for coming, Gary Lippman. It's been a pleasure. This is Raylan Casper-White signing off. Mm-hmm.